to Facebook Live. Hello again, welcome to Facebook Live. I'm Oren Adrich and I am the founder and president of the Institute for Transformational Thinking and the author of Says Who and Live True, a mindfulness guide to authenticity. Today, I am so excited to have Dr. Ron Alexander as my guest. And our topic today is mindfulness, creativity, and peak performance. So let me tell you a little bit about Ron for those of you that are not familiar with him. He is my dear friend and mentor. And again, I am so excited to have him here with me today. So Ron is a licensed psychotherapist leadership consultant and the author of the widely acclaimed book, Wise Mind, Open Mind. He is the executive director of the Open Mind Training Institute here in Santa Monica, a leading edge organization that offers personal and professional training programs in mindfulness based body mind therapies transformational leadership and meditation. His unique method combines ancient wisdom teachings with creative psychology and creative thinking into a comprehensive, integrated, behaviorally effective mind-body program. This system combines techniques that support strategies of personal, clinical and corporate excellence and health. Ron has been a leader pioneer in the fields of mindfulness-based mind-body therapies, gestalt therapy, somatic experiencing, Ericksonian mind-body therapies, holistic psychology, leadership coaching, integrative and behavioral medicine since 1970. He is a longtime extension faculty member of the UCLA Department of Humanities, Social Sciences, and Entertainment, a lecturer in the David Geffen School of Medicine, and an adjunct faculty member at Pacifica Graduate Institute and Pepperdine University. Hi, Ron. Welcome. Hi, Aura. It's so great to be here with you again. Good morning. Good morning. Yes. From our COVID uh, monasteries. <laughs> I love that. I love that you're calling it the COVID monasteries. That is just so great. You know, really, it connotes the sacredness of the space that we're in. You know, I've been calling it the temple. You've been calling it the monastery. Yeah. So it's it's a wonderful space to be in you know and i recently just defined it i used the thoreau model of walden when he went into self-quarantine and he called it constructive solitude uh -huh. which i thought was so beautiful do you know well one of his great teachings that's very buddhist is when he came out of uh, his solitude is he said beware of all activities that involve shopping 
hadn't heard that. That is so great, you know, because I really, I, I love the idea of thinking of this time as solitude, you know? Yeah. I mean, we've been living with isolation, new normal, quarantine, but the whole notion of solitude for me seems very contemplative. So I love the monastery aspect of it, the temple aspect of it. it, it it's really a sacred time, you know, for awakening. But I wanna, I wanna jump into the conversation with you, Ron, about mindfulness and creativity. Cause I know we're gonna go into mindfulness, creativity and peak, ex peak experience today, you know? Yeah. Peak. So, um, you know, isn't it true that when we practice mindfulness and are in present moment awareness, we can actually clear our mind of unnecessary mental clutter, right? Yes. Which, which helps put us in an active and ready state for creative inspiration to happen. So can you talk about that? Mindfulness and the creative space that we can go in. You know, one of the beautiful um, working axioms of practicing mindfulness meditation, particularly if you embrace, as I do, uh, the bare attention approach, which I'll just briefly describe, which is if you just sit, whether you're sitting uh, up straight or you're sitting on a cushion or even uh, laying down on a couch or your bed, but propped up uh, with pillows, and you just focus on the a rising and falling away of the breath or the in and the out of the breath. And you're just pay, basically paying attention to what's called instruction of bare attention to simply what is. And there are wave like qualities in the same way of attending to one's breath, the arising and then the falling away with each attention to each wave of breath and attention, clutter, which arises in the mind and exists temporarily, it is like a wave, then it washes away as you breathe out, it falls uh, away. And the link or the bridge into the open mind space, uh, open-minded creativity space, is as you clear away the clutter and the distress of thinking activity and whatever it is that you're feeling or the sensations that arise, exist and fall away in your physical body. As you go deeper into the process of bare attention, the clutter and the distractive mind goes and resides to the background. And what comes into the foreground is the clarity in the stillness of open-minded awareness. And in open mind, um, and I can see Carl Jung right behind you, that's the space where Carl Jung used to talk about the creative ideas, creative images, and the creative process starts to emerge naturally, spontaneously, and with a certain quality of elegance. And so mindfulness practice, the more that we get quiet and get still, the waves of distraction and the abundance of clutter in what Freud used to call the daily residue that builds up, that blocks us from the creative portal, that all gets cleared away. And so it's as if 
when we go into mindfulness and we intend, and I think that's very important, is it's really important to set an intention and to pair intention with attention. And each and every day when I meditate, I always have the intention of going into the creative portal. And so someone else might have an intention, for example, to open up a peak portal. Mm -hmm. Someone else might have the intention to open up um, a healing portal mm -hmm. to process and, and heal through feelings and emotions. Um, and so when I set in the mind's eye the intention to go into open mind, I, I'm setting in motion that I want the mind's activity to be like a laser beam and to purely enter into that space of creativity and then to then be open and then to enter into a state of receptivity. Because yeah. as we appear, attention with intention, the third part of that triangle is receptivity. Right. I, you know, I think of the pure mind state that you talk about, you know, and, and, and really opening up these portals, if you will, depending on which portal you choose to open up. I feel that when I'm in that present state that I'm really in the state of the illumined mind. Do you know that the mind is really in a state of uh, light, if you will, so that you are in a much more receptive state to receive, to download, do you know? Yes. And the creative process really, you know, can ignite that if you have those portals open and you are in that state of receptivity. I find that the ability to receive or download, which I love yes. to call that, like you're downloading on your computer, is vast. You know, you can really download so many amazing ideas and creative impressions and uh, go into places that you wouldn't otherwise if you were in a less receptive state, do you know? Yeah, that's really well said, Aura, because what you said about the illumined mind is important because mindfulness is like a spotlight bringing illumination to that of what what is and to that of what is not and so that of what is exists and resides in what i would call the conscious mind mm. conscious awareness and then that of which is not is that of which is in the unconscious the collective unconscious as Carl Jung talked about and then what I refer to as the creative unconscious mm -hmm. the creative unconscious creativity which is a very important aspect of uh, open mind is that the creative portal is ever present for everyone to tap into mm -hmm. and people often say to me in my psychotherapy practice well, how come certain people get to be creative and the rest of us uh, are not? Mm. And I always challenge that and say, well, that's your view that certain people are creative and that you're not is the distinction as to what's keeping you from being creative. And Yes, Ron, that is such a good point because I, as a writer, and I remember years ago when I was a screenwriter, I remember so many writer friends of mine would say, oh, I have the writer's block. 
And again, I think that's a preconceived idea, a limiting idea of your creativity. Do you know? Because when you talk about the portal and the expansiveness and how we can access our creativity, that those that that's there for us. It's like a well, you know, that we can always drink from. I think those premeditative ideas of, oh, I have writer's block or, oh, I'm not a creative person really are the thoughts that become our core beliefs about ourselves. Yes. And in hanging out now, clearly we both know being writers and having worked with people in the entertainment industry uh, who are screenwriters, that yes, there is what is called writer's block. Uh, however, the more that you invest in the view that you have writer's block, right. of what prevents <laughs> you from shifting and going across the bridge over the river of time where all the creative ideas are flowing. I love the river of time. I love when you say that because don't you think that's a little bit of not that the writer's block it cannot it can be real, but that one has to be mindful of self-fulfilled prophecies. Do you know that we can actually fulfill the very things that we believe that you know? I felt that the writer's block was a term that I was always very sort of curious about because I felt that you know it was like falling into a black hole and writers feared it, do you know? And, you know, understanding what you talk about, the generosity of creativity, it's really, it's this incredible well that invites us, that welcomes to drink from. And I think I'd rather look at creativity as a endless well to drink from than, the, than you know, oh, what, it's synonymous with writer's block, do you know? Yeah, uh, exactly. And when you hold the view that you have writer's block, then you continue to feel, think, and imagine in a blocked state of mind. But if you embrace that in the moment, you're experiencing a block. Right. And you become curious about, well, I now I need to enter into open mind and become receptive right. to what is underneath the block that of which is is emerging and is waiting for you to enter into your fingers and come onto the page will start to arise and flow out of your fingers. And then in the next moment, you'll discover, oh, I'm, I'm writing away. Very often when I write and I say, okay, I'm feeling blocked today, is I get up and I leave the computer and I get down on the floor and I do two, three, four yogic postures. And then I go into some mindfulness meditation, identify the block, and then I identify the view and say, is it true that I'm, I am blocked? Or what is really true? And what will emerge next will be, I'm actually experiencing some congestion. Oh, absolutely, stagnation. It's, an, it's energy. Don't you feel that? I mean, think of the word block. To me, it connotes stagnation. It's like a block of chi energy. Do you know? And I mm -hmm. think when you said you get on the floor and you do some yoga asanas, you know, it's like you're moving the energy. Do you know, if we could think of the block and what that means to me, it always comes down to energy. Maybe there's a block of energy somewhere. Do you know? Yeah. And in Chick Stemley's book, Flow, the number one principle that he talked about that differentiates a person from being blocked 
or being in flow is how they identify with either side of, of that um, domain. The more you identify with I'm blocked, the more that your energy is congested, it's contracted, you're constipated, and there's no flow. But the moment that you identify that there's a block and then move to receptivity, right. engage in some form of either direct action like a yoga posture or Tai Chi or Jikong or even or, dan or dancing. Just, just get up and dance. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> Put up some music and start dancing. I can't think of the woman's name, but there's a wonderful woman on my Facebook page um, feed. I don't know her, know her, but her name's Gwen, I think something. Uh -huh. And I think she's a local gal, but I think she broke her foot recently. But what she does on her Facebook lives is she does dancing and invites people to dance with her and that's like a wonderful tool to move out of block and stagnation and into the flow state i love it uh, dancing for me is like i know if i'm in too much in my head then i need to move into the body and i need to move the energy around so there's a lot of things we can do like dancing yoga mindful walking i mean get up from that you know, creative space that you're in and, and move the energy. I think it's great. You know, Ron, when I, what, go when ahead. I, when I read um, Isaacson's book on Steve Jobs' his biography, he repetitively throughout the whole book talks about that whenever Steve Jobs was needing to either make a major decision that involved a creativity decision with Apple in terms of a product or uh, a rollout and or the hiring or firing of people, he would either with someone or with himself as he would take what was called the famous Steve Jobs walk around the Palo Alto or the Woodside uh, neighborhood depending on which house that he was in. And historically, I think Taoists, if we go back thousands of years that Taoists, they were really tuned in that there was something about that if you wanted to nurture your own inner nature is it was important to go out and to walk and be in nature and to be with the birds and to be in uh, with the trees and the plants and the streams and, and the rivers. Because flow is about movement. And right. there was a famous uh, bioenergetic psychoanalyst, Alexander Lowen, and he coined a term where he said, where there's more movement, you need to bring more breathing, then there's more feeling. So more movement, more breathing, more feeling. Mm -hmm. And then when I wrote my book, Wise Mind, Open Mind, I added a fourth component uh, to that. Movement, breathing, feeling, and then opening. And so creativity is a lot about opening after you, you harness the energetic flow that comes about by putting yourself in some form of movement mm -hmm. and combining that with breath. Right. And that's why in mindfulness meditation, we have both sitting practice where we focus on the breath, but then we also have actual walking meditation practice. Right. That you can do either really slow or you can do it rather uh, rigorously and, and rapidly.
Right, yes, exactly. So speaking of the creative process and what enhances creativity and what doesn't, you know, there's a great story, which I love about Michelangelo and how he spent months in his studio in deep contemplation, staring at this huge mass of white marble. Do you know? Yeah. And his focus and attention led him to create his masterpiece, David. To me, that really exemplifies what it means to be fully present and focused, which mindfulness practice helps us do. And one of the great obstacles to creativity is distraction, as we know. And we live in a time when we are just bombarded and inundated you know, with the constant lure and temptation of distraction. So talk to us, Ron, about how mindfulness helps us stay present and focus and how it also, also helps us be less distracted so that we can be more receptive to the creative process. Well, part of what happens when you uh, do two things with mindfulness, there's applied practical sitting mindfulness. And so for example, I meditate 45 minutes in the morning on a meditation cushion. And then I follow that with some movement meditation, Tai Chi Chuan. And then in the evening, 20, 25 minutes or 30 minutes of sitting meditation, mindful practice, followed by 10, 15 minutes of, of Tai Chi. So in sitting practice, it trains us like athletes to be conditioned to direct the mind's awareness to begin to start observing the nature of conditioned mind and to unhook and get free from the nature of conditioned mind. What we think, what we feel we know, what we believe, what we don't believe, what we like, what we don't like. And mindfulness in its most pure form allows a disassembly of all of those views so that we just simply drop into the cultivation of simple, basic, bare attention to simply to see into the nature of the mind as it is, not in a preconceived notion or view of what we think is so. The second component of mindfulness that I think is very, very important when it comes to creativity is it's mindfulness in action. And I think you and I have talked about this many, many times is that there's meditation on the cushion, which I just described. And then there's meditation mindfulness in every single daily action. So there's meditation in movement and mindfulness in movement meditation. There's meditation in washing the dishes. There's meditation in taking out the trash. There's meditation in paying attention to um, your plants in your garden. And so that I think it's really important is to keep a unification between the sitting practice and then when you get up off your cushion is to continue to realize everything you're going to do today is part of your meditation. It's not like I just did my meditation and then now I can go and, and flip into my manic driven self. 
And that yeah. and that's and that's when we go into the susceptibility of distraction. That's when we allow ourselves to really what I call it's like being led like a dog on a leash. We're suddenly being life is doing us. We're not doing life. And that's the 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 fall, the, the sorry, the the pitfalls of distraction. Do you know yeah. we're not mindfully aware of our susceptibility to become distracted? And the irony of distraction is if you really start working with distraction, you discover that what's the primary function in principle if you're a creative in distracting yourself? It's to remove yourself from sitting in the receptive flow state. And as you said, receiving all the downloads that are ever present. Right. And right. what's the difference between Michelangelo and me, other than that he was an extraordinary painter and sculpturer, but the major difference between Michelangelo and whether it's, you know, John Lennon or it's um, right. um, Emerson is creatives recognize that distraction keeps you away from receiving what's ever present waiting to evolve and to come out of you. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's really good to ask yourself if you feel inclined to let yourself be taken by distraction, why is it that you're allowing for that? Having a mindful awareness is do I need a break? You know, do I want to be distracted? Am I getting too close to the depths of my creativity that I need to come up for some air? Sometimes, you know, our desire for distraction is not such a terrible thing, but I think to be aware of how much distraction do we need or want is yeah. important. Do you yeah. know? And when I was writing Wise Mind, Open Mind, my first book in Greece, and whenever I was feeling really intensely distracted, I used to ask this question is, what is it that I'm afraid of giving birth to right now? Oh, I love that you're saying that because Ron, there, there is something there. Sometimes we deliberately reach out for distraction because we might be getting too close to some inner depths within ourselves that can lead to some amazing breakthroughs in creativity. Yes, uh, what, what am I pregnant with? that I'm just so afraid of giving birth to right now that I want to distract myself and be looking at my email instead of at the blank page. Right. And, and to recognize the blank page as a writer and or as a painter and or as a um, songwriter is our best friend. Mm -hmm. It's there to support us. Right. To get pregnant with our own creative process and to kind of honor that creative process. You know, and I will say this, I mean, personally for me, sometimes when I'm really reaching that high illumined state of creativity, it can feel like you're about to disappear, that you're about to be swept up into this etheric realm of creativity that is not only so extraordinary and can be so blissful, but you feel as though you're flying and that can be a little scary. Yes, and, and the creative needs to be able to allow him or herself or her or himself to fly. Um, over the years, I have found that from meditation, 
there is a certain healthy exuberance. And sometimes in clinical psychology, we call it mania, but mania has unfortunately a bad rap in, in, in the culture. But Kay Jameson Redfell, who's written a lot about um, manic depression and you know the bipolar uh, components of the creative process, came up with a, a new term for her own mania. And she wrote a book called Exuberance. Beautiful, I love that word. Yeah, and that when you can allow yourself as mindfulness provides us to, to get out of the way of opening to the creative uh, portal, the mindfulness practice grounds you so that you can disassemble the personal I, you know, me, my ego, and you can catch the positive updraft of the ecstatic in the exuberant and hypomanic or manic. Eufor euphoric, ecstatic. You know, there's a beautiful passage in a Rumi poem that I remember finding years ago. I've had a hard time finding it again, but it stayed etched in my mind. May you soar so high that you yourself lose from view. Wonderful, wonderful. So may you soar so high yourself that you, you yourself lose sight from view or something. And that to me really, the, the image of that was so powerful when I first saw it, I was like, you are, you're soaring so high in the realm of the, of, of the ecstasy of creativity or the euphoria of creativity that you, when I say I have felt sometimes that, I, that I'm disappearing, the self, the self that I know as, you know, what is the self that we identify with versus the, the, the creative self, do you know? Yes. So um, I know we have only so much time together today and I know we could go off, but. I just wanna add one piece to that though, because you just touched on something really beautiful and that's that when you catch that upsurge of energy, the excitement, the exuberance, um, ecstasy, ecstasy. The number one thing that creates all creatives from tapping into the creative portal is the negative view that I'm not creative. Mm -hmm. Or the second negative view, someone else is creative and I'm not. Mm. Or the third creative view, creative people creative and i need to learn to become a creative person right and it's the view and that's what mindfulness teaches us and allows us to work with it's the disassembly of just those negative views to dis sure. dissolve them yeah which is you know you look at children and they don't have that opinion about themselves they don't have they haven't incorporated that as part of their core beliefs so look at them they're all very expressive and they're running around and they have imaginary friends and they're in the creative flow of life do you know which we've all come from that yeah and for those of us who have taught children or have had children or have sat with children if you give young children white paper and a bunch of crayons or white paper and um, oil paints and you lay them down and you just take your fingers and you start um, 
immersing them in the colors on a piece of white paper, the children will automatically, without you telling them that they need to draw a horse or they're going to have to paint a garden, they wow. go right into open mind. Beautiful. <laughs> they just go right to that they kind free of- fall. They free fall. They allow themselves to, what is that Milton quote? Trip the light fantastic. Yes. And children, they naturally, because they trust their flow and as adults and as adult mindfulness practitioners, we need over time to learn to trust our own rhythm and flow creatively in the same way that we trust our rhythm and flow for exercise, our rhythm and flow for diet, our rhythm and flow for sleep. Right, exactly. And that, Ron, perfectly is a wonderful segue for peak performance, okay? So let's talk a little bit about that. Peak performance is a state that is also known as peak experience, the zone of optimal functioning, and to use the word that you have just described it as, flow. Can you talk about how we can get into this zone of optimal functioning and flow so we can achieve something like the exceptional peak performance? Yes, there's a variety of ways to um, enter into the creative zone. And I'll, I'll just re review a couple uh, quickly. The primary mode to move into peak performance is to find a place in your home that's either inside or outside in your yard or in nature where you can rest and relax and you can sit like this with your eyes open, looking out into nature and to then pay attention to your breathing and your uh, breath process and to invoke and engage the creative unconscious to take you more deeply into the innermost room in the house of the self. That's mm -hmm. the interior room of open mind in the interior castle of yourself where creative receptivity resides. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. And nature really helps us get there. And whether you're inside the house looking out at the sky or looking out at a tree, or you're outside in your garden, looking up at the sky. The reason why it's important to link the view of the sky with peak performance is because the sky, when you look at the blueness of it, it's infinite. Mm -hmm. And all possibilities arise, right. exist, and dissolve right. in the vastness of the sky. Because everything that is came from that of which that created the sky. Beautiful, I so love that. What the, the, the Zen form is, koan is, well, what was our nature before the birth of our mother? Mm, beautiful. And the, the answer is the vastness of the blue sky. Vastness, the, the eternal, the infinite, do you know? Beautiful, Ron. You know, in psychologist Abraham Maslow's famous theory, hierarchy, hierarchy of needs, as you know, self-actualization 
is located at the very top of the pyramid, representing the need to fulfill one's individual potential. According to Maslow, peak experiences play an important role in self-actualization. Why do you think self-actualization is so important, Ron, for our well-being and spiritual growth? And also, how does mindfulness help support self-actualization? Well, in staying with the theme of, of Maslow is in his triangle of self-actualization, there were the basic uh, primary needs like food, uh, shelter, security, oxygen, air. Survival needs. Survival needs. And if you embrace, as Maslow did, Freud's theory that our unconscious was really like an iceberg. It was like 90% of our potential and our awareness is like an iceberg, it's under the water and only 10 or 20% resides above in what we call the normal waking state. In both Maslow and Carl Jung, and even Freud articulated this uh, primarily, um, all embrace the notion that as you move from the conscious waking state and activate the part of the self that's interested in actualizing all of the potential of the self, there are many, many layers underneath that part of the self, like the iceberg, that's the 90% of the unconscious, that's pure potentiality. And it's where our uh, soul resides. It's where our creative unconscious resides. It's where um, I call it the super positional field of infinite possibilities mm. from, a, from a quantum physics perspective. Mm -hmm. Super positional field of infinite possibilities. And peak performance and creativity arise from that super positional field. But Maslow's teaching was instead of just focusing on survival needs, one has to reorient their consciousness that the bigger game is the inner game. It's, it's not the outer game. Right, right. And yeah. not to let the, the, the survival needs dominate disproportionately to transcending the survival needs and allowing ourselves to rise higher in our awareness, which raises the consciousness so that we can reach those peak levels and experience our self-actualization, our self-realization, you know, as, I, as we work our way up the pyramid, if you will. Yes. You know? Yes. And um, the accumulation or the acquisition of just playing primarily in the exterior, external element in terms of ambition and ideals and wealth and abundance that's one part of the game, mm -hmm. but it's not really the full game. <laughs> no. It's actually it's an important part of the game, but it's a limited part of the game. Right. The, the inner game, which is an infinite inner game, because whether or not you ascribe to past lives, perhaps there is a process of extension 
we're we're matriculating and we're excelling in this form and in this body and then when we drop this body off we call it in zen dropped off body mind you know you drop this body well one might find consciousness re-inhabiting and re-existing in another form but there's a ongoing thread or filament of of soulful you know we say in union psychology soulful imaginative thinking that continues to be woven like an unending tapestry and so peak performance and creativity are part of the, um, that process of continuing and needing to dive more deeply into receiving from what's inside so that we can continue to weave that uh, tapestry Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. beautifully beautifully said and and i do feel that when we really do um consciously you know through the practice of mindfulness which gives us the awareness of where our thinking may stay or may be stuck and are we spending more time in the area of survival consciousness if you will and having an awareness of that so that we can open ourselves up which is what we're talking about the creative process so that we can receive and we can be in alignment with a more of a transformational experience and that to me is also part of the self-realization journey of mm -hmm. being ourselves receptive to transformational consciousness do you know and a very simple theorem that my grandfather taught me all work no play makes for a dull guy <laughs> that's basic 101 of like don't spend too much time in one state of mind do you know that's right because it, it's only one state of mind and, and there are many and there are many as we know <laughs> multitudes the great zen uh, master um, suzuki roshi uh quote in the beginner's mind there are many possibilities in the expert's mind, there are few. My, one of my favorite quotes. Yeah, and what I say is that in the creative's mind, there's infinite realms of possibilities. But if you're not in the creative mind, you're going to experience a quality of uh, limited view, which then contributes to feeling stagnated and feeling blocked and feeling stuck. And so the importance of you know coming back to, well, why do we sit quietly each day and go into a, a state of mindfulness, it's to go into dissolving that negative fixed view so that when you get that filter, just like if you were putting sunglasses on these lenses right now and they were so dark, I wouldn't be able to see you. Well, we wanna take that set of lenses off so that we can see more clearly. Absolutely. And just like you would put on your windshield wipers, because we know our windshields get dirty many times during the day. We yeah. sweep them, we sweep them clean and clear. We yeah. need to do the same sweeping motion, as you say, with the lens metaphor. Do you know, to keep the lens, to keep the to keep the window of seeing open and clear. Do you know? And that seeing is important because in peak performance, um, in the 80s, I used to work with um, a wonderful gifted chiropractor named Dr. Leroy Perry, uh, we're still friends and colleagues. And he worked with a variety of Olympic teams uh, around the world. And 
the American US Olympic team banned him because he wasn't an, an MD from working with their athletes. So there was a great um, high jump athlete named Dwight Stone, who um, was a patient of Dr. Perry's. And he was on the Olympic team. And newscasters used to watch and always comment and say, I wonder what he's doing. He's, he's sitting before it was time for his time to do the high jump. He's, he's always sitting with his eyes closed. And of course, you know, this is back in the 70s and the 80s when in the culture, meditation just wasn't uh, ever present as it is now. So they didn't really know that he was meditating. Right. And, and so he was interviewed years later and he said, yes, I was meditating and I was um, putting in place the principles of self-actualization. I was visualizing, seeing myself run up to the bar. I was seeing myself in the visualization, lifting my right leg up into the air. Mm -hmm. I was visualizing, kicking and lifting my other leg up into the air, my head rolling across the bar cleanly, both legs coming down into yeah. a clean jump. Yes. So it was the creative the use of creative visualization. Right, exactly, which is so powerful what we hold in our mind's eye. You know, I say a single thought, we hold a single thought in our mind's eye and we create it, we manifest it from that vision, do you yes. know? And, and athletes that I've worked with, uh, as well as professional musicians, have often said, uh, particularly professional musicians have, have told me uh, that when they've had the greatest performance that they can think back, either the top or the top three, all of the performances took place when prior to going on stage that night or that afternoon, they sat quietly. And some have told me that they sat and they actually meditated. And some have said that they just sat quietly and they put their hands on their drums. Mm. They sat quietly and they just held their guitar. And they got in touch with a very seminal energy. And that's that energy of the peak performer. Mm -hmm. And that then they went out on stage and then they dropped into the zone. And right. then we had the performance of their life. Right, the flow, the beautiful oh. flow. And speaking of the beautiful flow, Ron, I'm afraid we're out of time. Okay. You know, well, our time together seems to fly by when we're in the flow, Ron. It was perfect, <laughs> that's, Laura. That's the beauty of the flow. You, you, you absolutely have no sense of time. But yeah. be it as it is, we must be mindful of time. And I know that our time has come to an end. So I want to thank you so much, Ron, for another very illuminating conversation with you, which I love to have. I hope our listeners really got a better sense of what mindfulness and creativity and peak performance as a, as a, you know, a perfect trifecta, if you will, yes. they got out of this talk today and can, you know, think about maybe implementing some of these ideas for themselves, you know, so that they can become more aware, they can be more available and receptive to their creativity. And they also can realize 
a peak performance and a peak experience in their lives. So Ron, thank you so much. Namaste, and thank you, delight. Namaste and look forward to another conversation soon. Wonderful, take good care.